Hi, I'm Shiva Kumar and you're listening to Driven E-Commerce at Work, the podcast where we bring in conversations with the e-commerce experts to talk about their processes and lessons learned in creating an impact on the online business. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of uh, Driven E-Commerce at Work. Uh, our guest today is uh, David Fish. Uh, he's the founder and uh, CEO of uh, Curiosity CX, a consumer research and uh, customer experience consultancy company. He has launched over uh, 50 large-scale CX programs across multiple industries, and his prior experiences include American Savings Bank, Toyota, Marriage CX, more. He's also an adjunct professor at the uh, University of Arkansas and advisor at uh, Michigan State University. Thanks for uh, being a guest on our show, Dave. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, Shiva. Cool. Good morning. Um, how's, how's the week uh, going so far? Uh, we're early, so so far so good. <laughs> it's Monday at 930 or yeah, well, 9 o'clock, so, we're, so far we're off to a good start. Okay, perfect. So how long uh, are you working in home? Is this like new for you, this pandemic situation, working from home and the things? No, no, I've worked from home uh, for, I don't know, close to 15 years or so. And so no, this isn't this isn't new to me at all. What, what is new is uh, having, until recently, my entire family here with me. So uh, that's uh, that's that's the new part of it, but we're, we're managing quite well. Okay, okay. So one thing I was wondering is uh, about, I mean, when I looked at your education, so you have a phenomenal career in the customer experience, right? Uh, you also have a huge interest in psychology. Uh, you did your bachelor's in psychology and master's in applied psychology. And you also, uh, I mean, you actually didn't stop there, right? You got a doctorate uh, in applied psychology and organizational behavior, right? So where did this, I mean, come from and how it helped shaping your career? Yeah, I always, um, for me, I always enjoy um, the gray. Like, so a lot of people like to be able to solve a math problem and take satisfaction in that and having everything kind of in order. I like, I like the areas that are not easy to solve, not easy to understand. Um, and always I'm interested around what's around the next quarter. So, and that's human behavior, right? You don't really ever know, you know, completely what someone's going to do, but it's kind of fun to try to figure out what are those things that make people do what they do? Um, and so every time I do a study and talk to someone um, qualitatively, I'm learning something new um, that I didn't know before. Or every time I analyze a data set, it's like opening a brand new book, right? Um, a mystery book. You don't know what you're going to really find. You, you have some hypotheses about what's in there, uh, but you never really know until you start looking at it. And so that that's really what's driven my curiosity <laughs> over the over the years is, is what's around the corner and the fact that it's not it's not always solvable right it's just it's just an ongoing sort of investigation it's, it's a lot of fun that, that's that's what gets me out of bed in the morning okay okay cool so uh, i actually read your uh, uh cx article i guess uh, the one that you posted on your blog so uh, you mentioned about how the chocolate box and boxing was, uh, you know, ruined by the company when you actually ordered for your kids, right? So you also talked about uh, the packaging of uh, Gillette and Harry's uh, and how companies like, you know, Apple and Cox Communications are making the unboxing experience simple, especially from the consumer point of view. Uh, 
yeah. I think, you know, we're going more and more digital in the past couple of months. So other than, you know, this uh, packaging sort of thing. So what are some of the customer experience mistakes uh, that you see, you know, in, in, in the e-commerce brands are making actually? Yeah, I think some e-commerce does a, a wonderful job. And in fact, uh, the rest of the other industries can really learn from them in terms of making it super simple. And so that's, you know, it's that, that first click, you know, CRM and e-marketers know that, you know, getting getting someone to make uh, one small behavior is is the key to getting them to make larger behavioral commitments into the future. So those, those companies that do a really good job of making it as simple as possible um, and having that mystery, like that's one of the drivers of human behavior is, is you know, what's around the corner. And so, you know, should I, should I click on this? Um, what's, what am I going to learn? What am I going to get out of it? What's around the corner? Um, and so, so those are the companies that do really well is make it simple. But the companies that don't do it well are the mistakes from an, e from an e-commerce standpoint is, is making it complicated. It's like, uh, you know, you, you go in and like, a, you know, multiple sign-ons is a great example of, or, or, or complicated uh, passwords to log in, or uh, one of the, something like Amazon does a terrific job right at the end, just swipe and you buy. They, they, they take all the friction out of buying. Um, they do a wonderful job of, you could like, you know, you could look here, see what you want. They'll give you suggestions for what other things you might need uh, related to that or even not. And then to buy, you literally just swipe. So I think, like I said, removing the, it's, it's removing the friction, but it's also creating a sense of wonder and interest um, if, if appropriate, you know, some things it's kind of hard to do with paying your water bill, but um, other things, if you're, if you're selling something, you must have a passion around it. It's inspiring folks to be passionate about it as well. So I think those are, those are some of the, uh, some of the magic. Mm -hmm. Okay. So to me, you know, I, I, I still see, you know, there are gaps in the shipping. Uh, it's high time. We've been, you know, waiting for a moment like this. Consumers are now ready to, you know, buy from the global stores. And uh, due to the fact that, you know, most of the online stores displays, you know, out of stock products. So when, you know, you know, you're getting global visits, I wonder, you know, why still, you know, companies are not ready to ship to the other countries, I mean, other than the USA. I was browsing for some products and though, you know, I realized only, you know, during the checkout or card page, you know, there is no international shipping. So do you think a global shipping would actually help the e-commerce business right now? Or how do you, how do you see that from the e-commerce or the consumer perspective? Yeah, no, I think um, most consumers don't really care where it comes from, um, to be honest with you. I mean, They'll tell you if you ask people to be, there'll be some sentiment and nationalism about point of origin. But I think more or less American consumers at least are open to global commerce. And as long as it's from a verified uh, freight forwarder or shipping provider um, that they feel comfortable with that. And so, and I think you see just a, just a ton of evidence. I mean, we're, this, this, that, this um, virus originated in China Yet our commerce with China, uh, at least for, for consumer durables, is not slowed down. <laughs> you know, um, that's that's a lot of those masks that are flowing in the U.S. on Amazon and other sites are originating in China. And uh, I'm sure, I'm sure that um, you know, uh, folks are ordering those. So um, I do think to answer your question, um, that global shipping piece of it is is. Um, really important and, and people uh, are willing to 
I think the other thing too is and maybe you touched on this is the, the waiting part of it. Um, Amazon and Grubhub and all these other companies have changed Americans' expectation around wait time. And it's not just for Amazon and Grubhub and Uber Eats. It's once you have expectation for things coming, you know, quickly, that's reset across all the categories. So they don't have a lot of, um, Americans don't have a lot of um, um, patience <laughs> for for uh, shippers who are going to be slow. Um, now that that could vary by category. If you're if you're selling very high end things or things that are very hard to find, uh, or like say for furniture, um, which is expensive to ship, people are willing to do that trade off. I think a bit more, but for for most cases, people want it now, <laughs> and that's and and that's how you beat. Uh, brick and mortar, right? Is, you know, is the, can I wait for a day? And that, that overcomes the hassle of me having to go down to my local, you know, superstore and, you know, go into the crowds of people with face masks on, and, you know, maybe a few not and, and that, that whole um, uh, safety issue coming into play too, which I think is also driving a lot of the e-commerce that you see going on. Yeah. And from a consumer standpoint, how do you think the e-commerce uh, brands can actually reduce the product returns? You know, I've seen a mattress company offering 100-day free trail. Uh, so if you don't like the product, you can simply return the product and then request a refund. Companies like this, you know, they do this because they have a strong belief in the product. Uh, but I'm, I'm just curious, you know, I'm trying to understand. So what makes a consumer return their product? Yeah, so... Um you know just extreme dissatisfaction um it's it's kind of a hassle to return things um and so like the mattress companies they yeah they believe in their product but think about getting a mattress delivered to your house right now you have to get it back to them so if you don't like them you have to get that and you don't have a bed to sleep on anywhere by the way so it, it it's one of those things like on the face of it uh is a it seems like a risky move by a mattress company to do but uh, in reality, I, I don't have the data, but I would suspect that there's very, very few people, um, even a few that are kind of moderately satisfied and says, you know, I'm going to ship this thing back. Uh, so I think the other thing, though, for smaller products, um, if you ever do like a return um, on like an Amazon, uh, they, they make it really easy, right? You just, you know, you literally, they don't even ask questions half the time. They just print the this, this, this slip up, put it on the package and, and go down to your local, uh, you know, FedEx or UPS and give it to them. And they, they make returns really easy. So I, I think th those two, those two pieces of it, again, that's a friction piece, right? Um, but one is the, the number of returns uh, that are, are done, I think in some categories is quite low, but another, in others, they, the, the retailer or the e-commerce provider makes it easy. Um, and then the other thing around that is um, in the case of fitting, right? So um, in the case of clothes or anything, shirts, shoes, um, anything you can put on the site that will help them really figure out, you know, what, what is this and how does it fit? What does it look like? And so the e-commerce e part of it and really accurately displaying the, uh, the, the product and FAQs and just, just giving them as much information as possible so that when they do receive it they're not confused so i'll give you an example so um, i recently bought a guitar not the one back there but i bought a martin guitar and it, you know i was like this looks really nice it was it was cheap for martin guitars are expensive 
So it came in the mail. I opened it up, and it was a it was a mini guitar. <laughs> it was I didn't know they made mini guitars, but it was like this. It was like this big. And I was like, I don't want a mini guitar, you know. And if I read the fine print a little more closely, I would have noticed that it was a mini guitar, but it wasn't. So um, I sent it back. So that that's another one where and it's free shipping, free return. So they cost Martin guitars or whoever was selling it uh, money uh, that they probably didn't need to have spent if they could have been a little more clear on what the specifications of the product were in the first place. And I think I've also seen consumers, I mean, some of my friends and colleagues, so they used to do this sort of research. They they, they still look at the e-commerce website. They just browse them, uh, do some competition analysis. And then once they do all these things, they just come back to Amazon and they just order there. I'm sure why. I mean, <laughs> it's just because they have this sort of, like you said, they have this one day delivery and then you have this like a very simple return process. They don't even ask you questions. Hey, if you don't like it, just return. That's it. Right. Yeah. It's, it's super nice. That's another thing you bring up too, is like so many commerce sites um, are like big retailers, for example, who, who sell a lot of different products. The better ones in e-commerce um, are, are putting um, like grids together for customers. So they don't have to kind of, they're making the research process easier. So they don't have to go through and, and kind of figure out, okay, well, this has this much and this has this much. Why not make it easier for the consumer and just put it into a grid, okay? So it's this big or this small or this much horsepower or this much wattage or whatever it is. And then you can just line up side by side so the consumer can look across and, and make an apples to apples comparison without having to kind of read through and do a lot of research. So again, we're just making it easier for them to shop and select what they want. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so product survey has been considered, you know, one of the oldest marketing activities to learn more about the audiences and buying behavior. Uh, but is that really the case? I mean, do consumers really like those surveys? Oh, no, well, they don't. <laughs> uh, the, the trick is to, um, not make it a survey, right? If you can. So when we go out and we talk with people, I'm having a conversation just like I'm having with you. And we, we chat in living rooms and um, nowadays it's, it's via Zoom, but um, you get a lot of really good information uh, just by talking with people. And, uh, but that's also not enough. We, we know that people don't always tell the truth and they're not trying to lie. Um, sometimes they don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. And so, and so you have to make observations about why they're doing that. And sometimes, you know, that's called ethnography. So you go along with them and kind of just watch their behaviors. Um, and, and you might notice they do something and you say, why do you do that? And they're like, I don't know. And, and then, so you just kind of go into these five whys and, and try to kind of figure out why people do what they do um, by sometimes just observing them. And, and they leave evidence as well um, around behaviors. So you might notice a button that's, um, sort of discolored because so many people are using it or one side of a stairwell that's more, more worn than another. And it's sort of like a consumer forensics, right? What did they leave behind? Um, but there is a, there is, there's also a lot of behavioral data. So we can look at purchase patterns and, and derive preferences from purchase patterns. Um, and then, you know, there is the good old fashioned survey. And sometimes you do just, you have to ask, you know, for what you're doing, you do have to send out a survey. So in those cases, what I try to do is make it one, interesting, two, as short as possible, and three, make it worth their while. So, um, you know, give them something in return for their time, whether that's cash or prices or whatever. As long as that reciprocity is there, or it could be information. 
Um, so as long as that reciprocity is there and it's a fair trade for information for something, um, whether that's a, a social interaction or money or, or information, then, then you get some good, get some good data from people. The, the, the ones that do it poorly are the, um, you know, the annoying phone call you get during dinner <laughs> with a 15 minute survey or the eight page written survey or the 15 minute online survey that you have to do. And, and the, it's very apparent that the researcher just doesn't really care about you. They want their questions answered and the questions are not maybe that good <laughs> or hard to answer or you don't know like what they're, you don't have the knowledge to answer the questions. So it's one of those things that looks simple that is, uh, it's easy to screw up. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one thing that everyone says is, so go go and look at uh, uh, the places where your customers are instead of sending surveys. Maybe you can just go and, uh, you know, look at the posts they're doing on the social media. You can try to engage with them, like create content from there. But at the same time, you can get feedback from there. And I think you have to listen to customer calls as well. It's not just about the surveys. I mean, you cannot ask for more time from the customer. Right? Yeah, that's great. And uh, it's like, you know, people like they'll say, well, I hate surveys, but then we have Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. People love to share their opinions. They, they love to talk about themselves. So it's just finding the right, um, the right medium, the right way to get them to talk about what they want to talk about. I mean, if you just bought a brand new guitar, a brand new car, you want to tell your, you want to tell others. And that's why ratings work so well. It's like the people, they feel like, they want to be an expert. They want to be heard. They want other people. They want to help people in some cases make better decisions. So the rating sites work fairly well, as long as they're verified uh, customers. Yeah. So the, fortunately in some cases they, they can get game too. So yeah, exactly. And uh, not every company has a customer experience team. I guess to, you know, go one step further, I would say some of them, don't even have the customer success team either. So, you know, why having an internal customer experience team uh, is really important and how does it actually differ from the typical customer success process or the team? Yeah, so with customer success, I mean, it, that, that definition varies by industry, uh, but usually those are the, that's the implementation team, right? Um, and they're, they're there to get a job done um, and install a piece of software or whatever, whatever it is they're, they're charged with doing and they, they do a good job. But um, customer experience teams within organizations are, are pretty important um, in that they help coordinate and provide some kind of governance. So um, in order to have an end-to-end -end customer experience, someone has to sit down and say, here's what the customer wants and, and here's what we should design to from an experience design standpoint. And so that transcends marketing, it transcends operations, sales, product design. It, it really is a, a, a meta function of the organization that you have to um, make all these different functions work together and coordinate with one another. And so the customer experience team isn't charged with doing everything. They're charged with helping these functional departments work effectively together to create a friction-free um, experience as a baseline. And then from there, how can we improve the experience holistically? And so like, by example, a great a company that just knocks out of the park is Disney, Disney Resorts and, uh, and those theme parks. 
And every little aspect of that experience is orchestrated and, and purposely designed. Characters stay in character. They, there's, you don't see any trash ever on the ground. You, everything is working together, including the merchandise, the experience, what they sell, you know, everything. And, and it's just beautifully done. And that, that's not by accident. Um, there's two pieces that, that really makes that work well. One is the people that they hire and the philosophy that's kind of the culture that's just embedded within. And the other piece of it is um, they, they do have a coordinating force that, that helps coordinate that overall experience and think of it holistically and make sure it all, all works together. Um, so yeah, and it, as organizations grow in size, Early on, it's easy for me, for example, to control my customer experience because it's just me and a few other people are at a local hardware store because they, you know, the owner's there and maybe two or three other employees. When that gets difficult is when we get larger and we have multiple locations. And now we have to coordinate one vision across a larger organization. And so it's not until organizations get to, you know, maybe, um, you know, several, you know, several thousand customers or more um, in maybe several thousand employees or more that they really need to start thinking um, about implementing something like this. Um, otherwise, you, you can kind of just do it organically. It just happens organically. So uh, one thing that every CMO, uh, you know, been telling lately is, uh, so your sales is directly proportional to the value you actually bring into your audience or maybe you know the customers so the more value you bring in into their life the more conversion you can actually expect uh, so how does this actually applicable to the online online business i mean let's say from the consumer standpoint uh, can you tell us what's that one or two thing that's going to convert uh, the first time visitor into a buyer right i mean what do consumers expect when they visit a homepage of an online store. Yeah, I think it's, it's very, very clearly communicate what it is that the value that you're providing. Um, and, and so that one, like I said, if we make it simple, make it clear, make it really interesting and unique, lure them in, not in a negative way, but invite them in. Um, so the, the best ones I've seen are just super, oh, this is what they sell, this is what it does. Um, there's evidence that whatever they're claiming it does, it works. It's unique. It's different, um, and, and that's how you, that's how you get them into the in, in there the first time. Of course, the other thing is SEO, right? Um, so uh, you want to be high on on that that first search page. Um, a lot of search is done for retail. I forget the statistic, but it's it's quite high. The first stop that people make for buying anything. Is Amazon? <laughs> you know, they don't even go to Google. They just go straight to Amazon, put in some search terms. So they, Amazon owns a lot of search uh, right now. So that that's you know, if you have a storefront or whatever, um, that's a consideration too. So I think those those are the those are the things you want to do. And then you, you mentioned um, e-tailing. So I think it's important to understand that if you are an e-commerce, you're an e-commerce store, but you're you're more than that, right? You have to, you're you have customer support obligations. It's a big frustration for startups is like you buy these new sunglasses and you can't get a hold of anyone to save your life from a customer support standpoint. Um, and I understand the reasons for doing that is to reduce overhead and keep the cost down. But it becomes to a point of the ridiculous where like, who is this person? Like I, I bought a pair of headphones once and I, they didn't work that well. And I could literally not find anyone in that company or even who owned the company. 
because uh, I want them, I want them replaced. And so that's under, understanding that you're selling things, but you have you have as an organization you have an obligation to also provide that total experience. So someone comes in, buys something, you send it to them, they use it, they might have questions or want to return it. It's owning the entire thing, not just that that e-commerce piece of it, which is important, but just one piece of the overall overall experience. So when it comes to content creation and the content marketing strategy, everyone has their you know own way of doing. Uh, but when it comes to you know creating and the brand the brand identity, I mean, what type of content actually works? I mean, uh, everyone is talking about the social media marketing strategy and offering value to the audience. But from a consumer standpoint, what an e-commerce business should actually do to create that uh, you know brand for their business? Yeah, I think um, there's a couple things. One is, uh, you know, really having a simple and clear understanding of what it is that you're you're selling. Like like I mentioned before, that brand identity, um, having uh, emotional appeal if possible. So we know that um, emotional connections are um, very powerful, and, and people remembering. Um, remembering, uh, you know, what you, what you do now in some verticals, that's might be challenging, but you can connect it to happy memories or sad memories or, or whatever those things are. Um, that's gonna, that's gonna create a more powerful brand, um, uniqueness. So how do you stand out? So, you know, no one, no one ever, um, there's no such thing as timid marketing, right? <laughs> you have to be bold. You have to, you have to, take a stand and do, and especially if you're small, be even controversial. Um, those, those are the things. So I think some people, when they start a business, um, they want to pick a logo that looks like other people's logos or pick a color or a style because it's consistent. That's a great way to be forgettable. You don't want to be, you don't want to be part of the pack. You want to stand out. And so just be, be different, be weird um, if possible. Um, and, and, you know, depending on what you're doing, you don't want to offend too many people, but you know sometimes you have to take risks to, to uh, be successful. So that would be my my recommendation. Okay, so uh, the way that businesses do marketing has uh, changed over the past couple of years. I mean, everyone is trying to you know bring in the human side of uh, their company. Uh, companies themselves are promoting their employees to build personal branding, which is what you know going to bring in value because the customers uh, wanted to see who the real face is behind that brand, right? Uh, so in this scenario, how do you how do you see the chatbots? Uh, does chatbot serving the right purpose? And I mean, does it really add value to the consumer? Yeah, no, I think chatbots all the rage, right? For you know, the last couple of years anyway. But um, the the uh, I think they work really well, especially with um, younger audiences. So a, a couple things to think about: one, who's your audience? Um, the generation in front of me likes to talk on the phone. Gen Xers, some Gen Yers, emailers. Uh, the current generation, text. That's that's what they do in chat. That's cool. So you want to make sure you're lining up your modalities of customer support and communication with preferences of what your customers want. So that's the first thing. The second thing on chatbots specifically, um, the nice thing about chatbots is one, as long as you're transparent that you're that you're you're, you have a chatbot with your customers and, and they're, they're able to answer limited questions. People are fine with that. 
they're like, okay, I just need this um, basic information. Um, and, and, but the idea that you can, again, this idea that um, consumers can opt to kind of get to that next level, to easily get to a human being um, is really important. So as far as flipping it around, looking at the consumer or the company side of the equation, you have one person who can maybe take on three, four, five different inquiries all at the same time. So it's, uh, it's really quite nice from an efficiency standpoint and able to kind of maintain and, and keep multiple inquiries going all at the same time. And I think that's the allure. So in general, I think it works pretty well. Some of the mistakes on chatbots that people make, like I said, is one, not pretending that they are people when they're not. Uh, two, ha trying to have a chatbot do things that humans need to do. So in other words, just letting chatbots work on their own without any human guidance or intervention. Um, and then three, trying to have a chatbot go across too, too much of the, the, the customer journey. And so you should focus your chatbots on whatever area that they're, you know, in terms of the AI part of it, um, you can only stretch those guys so far in terms of the, the substantive area they're covering. So it's customer support. Let's, let's have a chatbot for that. If it's on acquisition, let's have a chatbot for that. And then you can kind of get those chatbots learned up. Um, on those specific domains rather than trying to stretch them across the entire uh, cycle, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I think, like you said, I mean, uh, I mean, consumers don't like faking it. I mean, let's say if you're being upfront about that, you know, okay, you're using the chatbot. Sometimes, you know, they appreciate, okay. So, I mean, it's like, a, it's, it's answering something more than what a can do. And then they're pretty much, you know, sure about what questions they'll have to ask. So that's a good thing. I mean, to be honest about what you're doing. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's good. That's the basic idea is, you know, it, it's all about human interaction. You, you, you like people who are honest, you trust them. Then that builds trust in the brand. It's, the brand's nothing more than the, it's just another, nothing more than like a personality it's interacting with someone, someone else, you know, it's like, you want to be able to trust it. You want them to be frank with you. They you, you want to know there's a, a person back there and they're human beings. So yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us a little uh, about, you know, customer journey map and how to create an effective journey mapping, you know, customer experience? Yeah, sure. So like journey mapping is, uh, you know, it's been around for, for a while now. Um, but the, the idea behind it is um, to understand, to kind of, when you get your functional roles within an organization, you start looking at your little, your little piece of the elephant and not really understanding the overall, um, the overall view of the organization. So when we do journey mapping, um, in some marketing folks kind of view journey mapping as you know path to purchase. How can we get them to, to buy more stuff? Um, and that's you know that's cool, but that's not how we go about doing it. Ours is more of a holistic approach to it, um, where it's more or less an organizational change initiative. So um, we're looking to, of course, most organizations are in business to, to make money. Um, but you, you make money by delivering value. And so let's focus on that. So the first thing we do is, um, is sort of go out and, and get the internal take on, how, you know, Shiva, how do you think it works for DC cap? You know, what, what gets people started from the catalyst? Uh, what, what makes them decide to buy something from DC cap and then, okay, well, t walk me through what happens next. Okay. Well, then they decide to purchase and, who is it that's purchasing and who's not? And then once they get an interaction or they start uh, doing business with DC Cap, what does that look like? And 
where are those moments of truth? And then at some point, maybe they're, the project ends. Um, what does that look like? And how does the billing look? And, and get that whole internal view from, from cradle to grave, if you will. And then they're like, okay. And by the way, within DC Cap, we'd get, you know, Shiva and Karthik and like just different parts of the organization uh, together, marketing, sales, all together, operations. And so, and, and through that discussion, there's usually a lot of, oh my, I didn't know we did it that way. <laughs> you know, I didn't know you told them that because we tell them this down here and right there and then you have the organization communicating with one another um, and you're making connections. Now, maybe a company the size of DC Cap, that's, that's not as much of an issue um, because you are connected. But when you get to scale, when you get to the size of Walmart, <laughs> you know, um, you know, you could be in the same department and not know everybody. So um, making those connections across the organization, there's, there's value right there. But we don't stop there. The next thing we do is we go out and we talk to customers and we say, okay, here's, here's what, what's your experience? And we'll, we'll do it a lot of different ways. I like to do it qualitatively, just going out and talk, talking with people and just listening and hearing them. Or in some cases, we'll go out and observe, you know, how, how are they going about this experience? Um, and then we'll come back and we'll compare the two. So, you know, they said internally, here's what it looks like. And this is what your customers are saying. And we'll have a meeting and right in that meeting, there's like a, oh my God, I didn't know that's why that's happening. And, um, you know, or I didn't know that was occurring or no, I didn't know that could occur. And, uh, and so there's a, there's a good conversation right there and then, and we'll put together a, a journey map, a visual map. But the, a lot of people make the mistake, the map is the, the outcome. It's really the journey, right? The journey of making the dream map because that's where the change happens because internal stakeholders start recognizing where these opportunities and lie, both from reducing friction to, oh, well, you know what we could do here is there's an opportunity, they're already here. You know, maybe we can suggest something else that they might want to purchase to go along with this with an accessory or whatever. So there's also marketing opportunities in there too. Um, and so, um, and then out of that, sometimes we'll go into a quantitative stage because say you're a bank, there's a one or two people that complain about the how hard is to reorder checks. Is reordering checks a big issue? Where does that rank amongst all the things we need to work on? So we, what we do is we'll go out and do some kind of quantitative, usually a survey of their customers. And at the end, we work with the final session we call reconciliation um, and action planning where we'll, we'll pull a chapter from design thinking. And the thing in design thinking, uh, one of the things we use is we are able to rank these things in terms of desirability. What does the customer want from, from sort of A to Z um, and, and importance? And then, but that's that's not enough. If we just stopped there, we would, we would go out of business, right? Because if we just only thought about what the customer wants um, and, and, and just, you know, design experiences to that, uh, a restaurant would have a one-to-one -one ratio of waiters and waitresses to customers. Like that's not sustainable. So we need to not only look at what the customer wants, but how feasible is it to do that? So, you know, how much is it going to cost? What's the technical complexity of doing that? And then what's the viability? How much money are we going to make? How much money are we going to save? So it's those three things to rank all these things that we've discovered in a dream lab. And that's, that's our honey list. That's our list to go out and, um, and fix things um, or, or, or um, design new things for is desirability, feasibility, viability. And so from there, then we're, we're not done, but we have a list of things we need to work on. 
and we get cross-organizational uh, groups together and they start, you know, trying to solve these problems now that we know what they are. So that, that's in a nutshell sort of how it works. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So before we go, uh, I've just got some quick questions. Uh, it doesn't have to be detailed, just a brief about it. So can you tell us uh, one advertisement that you actually liked uh, can be B2B or B2C? Um, and uh, like, I mean, it can be digital or non-digital. When advertising? Yeah. Uh, geez. Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think anything that has humor in it, uh, it always appeals to me. I remember the one that kind of sticks in my mind. Remember the FedEx one where they're in a meeting and the one guy's like, hey, I have an idea. Why don't we send it by FedEx and we can save all this money? And everyone ignores them. And then the executive says, wait a minute, I have an idea. Why don't we send it by FedEx? And I was like, that's a good idea. So the use of humor, I think, uh, for me, an emotion is, is pretty effective. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you tell us, uh, one or two customer experience that you liked? I mean, one from the digital, maybe online, and uh, other from maybe retail, non-digital? Non sure. Uh, digital one, um, Amazon's amazing. You know, the, it's like the no hassle. Uh, you know, I, I ordered, like, I forget, like, HP sauce, I think, and it took, like, four months to get here, and I'm like, it's taking forever. I don't I don't want this, and no question asked. They just refunded me. It was super easy. The guy on the chat session uh, was friendly. He wasn't didn't act like a bot, like we kind of goofing around or whatever. Super, super easy. So that's that's a great one. Um, as far as a, an experience um, that's non-digital, uh, you know, just short story. But the, I was at a Four Seasons, and we were out, and we were coming back Four Seasons Hotel, and we're, I was just chit chatting with someone else about how the bar had closed. And there's no beer or whatever, and it was it was just making conversation. Well, there's someone behind me that worked for the resort, overheard me. So the next night we came back, and there's a there's a six pack of like cold beer waiting in the room. So, uh, sort of a, it wasn't a complaint. I didn't make a, a complaint. He he just heard me and decided to do something special. And so I've told that story about 20, 30 times now. So, <laughs> and, and I'm sure it had an ROI. Cool. Yeah, that's good to hear, uh, Dave. Thank you so much. And where do you want uh, the listeners to go? Do you want to give them some links about you and the company? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. If you want to learn more about Curiosity, what we do, um, we're at curiositytx.com. Uh, so give us a visit. I also publish out on Customer Think, uh, which is Bob uh, Bob Thompson's site. Um, so take a look there. And I have a book that's coming out. It's called the uh, Field Book. Uh, field guide to CX, uh, a guide, uh, no frills guide of getting stuff stuff done. So that I'm looking to get that published early next year. Everything goes well. So it's been uh, it's been a really great talk with you today. Cool, yeah, for sure, uh, Dave. I'll put all those links in the podcast description. And thank you so much for taking your time today, Dave. And you have a good day. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you so much for watching and listening to this episode of Driven E-Commerce at Work podcast. This show is brought to you by DCCAP, the company well known for its e-commerce product suits for B2B distributors. To learn more, visit dccap.com. That's www.dckap.com. Make sure you subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Catch you guys very soon with another interesting episode. Until next time, see you.